in democracy, which will continue through May. The series explores the conditions under from which democracy can flourish, the forces that imperil it, and the political, social, and cultural interventions needed for democracy to realize its full potential as an inclusive, equitable, and just political system. I want to make sure our audience members are aware of the question and answer function on the screen. Since this is a webinar, you do not have Center. the ability to have the audience interact directly with our speaker, but you can submit your questions in English or Spanish at any time during the event, and Professor Ben Giat will address them after her presentation. Also, this event will be recorded and available online in a few weeks. In the post-webinar survey, you can sign up for our mailing list to be notified when it becomes available. My name is Susan Derwin, and I'm the director of the Humanities Center. I want to extend my thanks to the Spanish interpreters for this event, Professors Viola Milio and Alina Ferreira, and to the ASL interpreter, Katie Boyce. Thanks go as well to the staff members who coordinate our programs. I see Associate Director Aaron Nurstad, Assistant Director Adam Morrison, and Senior Artist Paula Schaefer. Today's presentation is co-sponsored by the Harry Gravetz Memorial Endowment and the UCSB Italian Studies Program. Thanks as well to, to Professor Hong for introducing me to Professor Ben Guillant's work. I would like to acknowledge the Chumash people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which the Interdisciplinary Center is located. And I would also like to pay respects to elders, both past and present. And now I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Ruth Ben Ghiat, Professor of History and Italian Studies at New York University. She received her BA in History from UCLA and her PhD in Comparative History from Brandeis University. Her research focuses on fascism, authoritarian leaders and propaganda, and the threats these present to democracies. She has written or edited seven books, including Fascist Modernities, Italian Fascism's Empire Cinema, and the recently released Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present. She has also published more than 100 op-eds in media outlets such as CNN, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post, and she is regularly consulted as an expert source for television, radio, podcasts, and online events around the globe. Her work has been supported by Fulbright, Guggenheim and other fellowships, and she is an advisor to Protect Democracy, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to fighting, to fighting efforts at home and abroad to undermine our right to free, fair, and fully informed self-government. It's my pleasure to welcome Professor Ben Giat to the virtual IHC. Thank you, Susan and, and Aaron and everyone else at the Interdisciplinary <clears throat> Humanities Center for hosting me, and Stephanie Mariaham and Claudio Fogu of the Italian Studies Program as well. My book is about the evolution of authoritarianism, and I see strong men as a subset of authoritarians, and they are distinguished by their use of machismo along with corruption, propaganda, violence, and the myth of national greatness. And this makes up the uh, authoritarian playbook. <clears throat> In 
And one reason I wrote the book, excuse me, <coughs> one reason I wrote the book was to help Americans have a frame for what they were experiencing uh, under former President Trump beyond American history. And it's the first book to put Trump's presidency in a global historical context. It argues that Trump's actions are one manifestation of how authoritarianism works today, when one party states are less common. So people come in through elections and they have to manipulate elections to stay there. It looks different in every country, but trying to stay in office illegally is often part of the process. So how do things begin? Well, it's remarkably same, the same over a century. An individual appears on the political landscape who seems to stand for something new and grand, skilled in the arts of self-presentation and emotional manipulation he captures the hearts and minds of millions, telling them he will clean up the country or even drain the swamps, which is slogan Mussolini pioneered. Soon a personality cult forms around him and he's embraced as a savior who will bring order to a disordered world. And yet day after day, he courts the most extremist and criminal elements in society and many of them come to power already with a criminal record or under investigation. And he pardons many people, many criminals, so they can ply their skills as criminals on his behalf. So this glamorization and legitimation of lawlessness starts early and comes to occupy an ever larger place in the new political culture that these leaders create. At the same time, these leaders use the myth of national greatness. They enchant people with a utopian vision of what the nation might be, so they're forward-looking. Even as they also simultaneously channel nostalgia. So it's not just making the nation great, it's making the nation great again. And this might involve fantasies of return, reviving a lost empire. So Mussolini famously had the Roman Empire. And Erdogan in Turkey talks about reviving the Ottoman Empire. <clears throat> For Trump, it's been a vaguer fantasy of returning to a time when male authority was secure and women, people of color, and workers knew their places. Personality cults are essential to the functioning of strongman rule. And I'm going to share my screen here. So just one moment. Personality cults present the leader as a man of the people, but also as a man above all other men. He does not just represent the nation as democratic heads of state do, but he embodies the nation and, and he, he bears in his own body and his soul, its sorrows and dreams. And so here is, and this kind of twofold thing of being a man of the people. So you're um, acclaimed from below, but you also receive divine, uh, a divine mandate to rule. So this is Gaddafi, with you we embrace greatness, which is the people, he always said that he came, he was speaking on half of the people, the people, you know, the revolution was about the people. So he's 
the claim from below, but of course he's looking toward the heavens because he was supposed to be uh, channeling divine inspiration. <clears throat> and this theme of divine uh, blessing bestowed on the ruler or that he's placed there by the will of God or history to realize the potential of the nation goes on throughout a century. Um, God wanted Donald Trump to become president, said former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders in this tradition. And here we have a painting um, by John McNaughton, who's a, a Trump, uh, uh, Trump cult artist in a sense. Respect the flag, and, and this is the quote outrage of uh, <clears throat> the, the kneeling, players kneeling to protest uh, uh, police racism. But what's of interest here is that Trump is, you know, clutching this tattered flag, but he's feeling the pain of the nation, of the wronged nation. And so again, it's not just representing, it's that you embody, you take the pain unto yourself. And this was something when Hitler would speak, people would uh, think he was expressing things that they felt, but they didn't know how to, to say. So this is important. And here we have evangelical Christians together with Orthodox Jews who have acclaimed him and he delivered uh, very well for both those groups. And an irony of strongman history is of course that it's often the most profane individuals who are anointed in this fashion uh, from Mussolini who was a de devout atheist who was the one who made peace with the Vatican, created uh, Vatican City. Uh, and Trump is not exactly a pious man, and yet he's acclaimed in this fashion. <clears throat> now, personality cults are diffused through propaganda strategies that have often stayed the same, remarkably the same, even as information mediums have changed. Uh, from Mussolini's use of newsreels to uh, Bolsonaro and Trump use of Twitter, and Modi in India's use of Instagram, authoritarians always have direct communications channels with the public. And this is very important that it's unmediated. So this is how they forge an emotional bond and uh, again, have this uh, direct contact with the public. They also love rallies uh, as a favored means of acclaim and, and direct contact. Um, but from the Nazi uh, assemblies at Nuremberg, with Hitler's name spelled out in lights, the strongman has turned politics into an aesthetic experience with him as the star. Over a century, the communication codes and celebrity cultures of film, TV, and now digital storytelling shaped the leader's self-presentation as omnipotent and infallible. At his peak, he is not only always right, this is the slogan, Mussolini is always right. And this is interesting because if this, uh, it was the entrance to the exhibition, you would see this from the street as you drove by. So these slogans were kind of uh, dispersed throughout the public sphere. And here's Modi, who, or Modi rather, as a hologram. Um, he not only is highly effective at telling his story through Instagram, but he uses holograms to appear simultaneously at rallies around the world. And so this is part of their, the personality cult makes them omnipotent, omnipresent, and also often undefeated by misfortunes or illnesses that might 
fell ordinary mortals. And they very much um, with their like Mussolini and Putin have their shirts off. Uh, this is a, an image I so wanted to include in the book, but um, I was not given the rights to do so. <laughs> and this is This isn't even a retweet. This was Trump before he was banned. This is from 2019. Uh, his imagining of him, uh, his face photoshopped <laughs> onto Sylvester Stallone's body as Rocky. And whatever the medium, we will not keep this, we will not inflict this on people. Here we go. Whatever the medium, a paradoxical, paradoxical truth holds. The more skilled the leader is at this mediatized politics, the more his admirers see him as authentic and feel a personal connection with him. Now, while I stay away from psychological analysis in the book, one thing that surprised me was how similar the personalities and temperaments of these rulers were and the way they embrace similar styles of governance, even though the outcome uh, varies widely from era to era. And the book is divided into the fascist era. So you have the you know, dictatorships, the age of military coups, and then new authoritarians who don't necessarily always wreck democracy completely. And here, and I have Berlusconi, other people come in and out. So all of them use what's known as divide and rule practices to prevent anyone else from gaining too much power. This produces governments full of conflict and upheaval. And uh, they surround themselves with flatterers and family members They create what's known as inner sanctums, or I call them cocoons, people who will not tell them any truth they don't want to hear. And this, of course, encourages their worst, uh, their hubris, their impulsivity, their arrogance, and Erdogan's unpredictable decision making, which is worsened by just having family and flatterers around himself, is typical. If you work so strongly, it is dangerous to be too competent or too popular. And this kind of inner sanctum that they construct around themselves. Uh, is was became was shockingly that Trump followed this pattern very well. And of course, the flatterers, the family members, and the cronies are chosen for their loyalty rather than their expertise. So they shield him from any counsel that conflicts with his will to make reality what it needs him to be. And in 1939, the, an exiled German journalist, uh, Karl von Wiegand, said, for God's sake, don't upset the Fuhrer which means don't tell him bad news. Don't mention anything that is not as he conceives it to be. So this situation is familiar to those who have worked for Gaddafi, Erdogan, Trump, and many others. Now, of course, none of this serves the authoritarian well. Isolated in his cocoon with craven subordinates, afraid to tell him the truth, reinforces his worst tendencies, as I said before, including paranoia and vengefulness. And over time, he believes his own fictions and he makes bad decisions. Authoritarian history is full of projects and causes championed by the ruler out of pride and megalomania and implemented to disastrous effect. Mussolini said, I follow my instincts and I'm never wrong. As he entered Italy into World War II in 1940 against the advice of many of his generals. When he was removed in 1943 by his own Grand Council, because the Allies had landed in Sicily, creating an emergency, he came to work the next day as though nothing had happened. And then the king summoned him and arrested him. So this brings me to 
the chapter I found most interesting to write in a way, how they fall from power. And the authoritarian playbook doesn't have any chapter on failure. It doesn't foresee the leader's charismatic hold weaken until his own people turn against him. It doesn't have any pages on the horror of being voted out of office as happened to Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet, who was pelted with tomatoes and eggs when he attended the inauguration of Chile's first democratic head of state, or being forced into exile as happened to Mobutu of the Congo or uh, Idi Amin of Uganda. Democratic heads of state see their departures from office as an opportunity to build on their legacy but authoritarians regard the loss of adulation, power, and immunity from prosecution as an existential threat. And this is why they're supremely unprepared to leave office and they turn to desperate measures. Some start wars and some plan coups. Political scientists have a name for this, gambling for resurrection, and almost all autocrats lose the wager. And Trump was one of these. So I want to put what happened in our, we have the impeachment trial going on, and I want to put uh, this in perspective. Um, and thinking of an American president as an aspiring authoritarian may be a leap for some. Trump, in fact, didn't wreck democracy. He didn't have time to wreck democracy. But Trump never intended to govern as a, as a democratic small d president. His goals and priorities never had anything to do with public welfare or bipartisan governance. He was in power for three reasons mainly. One was to turn public office into a money-making machine for Trump organization. So when he was golfing and people said he was incompetent and lazy because he golfed, he was actually making money visiting Trump uh, properties. So this was the work he wanted to do. He also was building his personality cult to keep people loyal to him and seem invincible. And it's quite astonishing, considering he didn't uh, create his own party like Berlusconi or Mussolini, how he's managed to domesticate the GOP in the space of just a few years. This is a huge success. And of course, he wanted to spread hatred uh, because leaders like him <clears throat> depend on polarization. So. My, we can't explain his actions nor those of his followers and GOP enablers without reference to authoritarianism and its history. And of course, the events of January 6th were a wake-up call for many to the dangers Trump represented. And they showed like no other his scorn for the rituals of American democracy, its norms and its customs, some of which are, are really on the honor system such as the idea that the loser of an election would give the winner the respect of vacating office. Indeed, the methods Trump used to try and overturn the election draw from all eras of authoritarian history, and we should pay close attention to them since they could be normalized in the future. They become part of the way the GOP, which is a far-right party, um, conducts its business, its everyday business it uses these uh, these methods. So first, uh, Trump was exploring the idea of a military intervention with the regular armed forces. Uh, and this, this is why General Milley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, made that uh, statement out of the blue 
that the armed forces is not going to obey an individual, but just the Constitution. So we knew from him making that statement that Trump was exploring this, this action, which is out of the age of military coups. Then he, uh, then he was attempting to pull off the 21st century despot trick of electoral man manipulation. And we know this story, pressuring people to find votes, like with Georgia Secretary of State. And of course, this is how authoritarianism already operates under Putin in Russia and Erdogan in Turkey and many other places. Election results that don't go your way become just another piece of information to be denied and replaced with a fabrication that suits, that creates the reality you need to stay in power. And the fact that it didn't work, and in fact, the Georgia Secretary of State has filed a suit against Trump, uh, shouldn't, you know, d doesn't mean it's not extremely bothersome and dangerous because with a few right players uh, who were sufficiently compromised, it could have been a different outcome. And finally, Trump channeled the, uh, in a way, early fascism, and calling on these extremist uh, paramilitary groups and, and also people from inside our institutions to uh, stop the steal and rescue him from defeat. This is January 6th. And um, I'm reminded of, of course, black shirts and brown shirts who use violence to defend their leader. And so here we have an insurgent, you've seen this probably before, with the Camp Auschwitz, just to make the link clear. And one thing I want to stress is how important these leader cults are, because the history of authoritarianism also tells us that followers who feel their leader is endangered can become extremely volatile. And here, uh, the part of the personality cult that's important is the victimhood that Trump, like all authoritarians, was always the victim, the victim of the deep state, the victim of journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And so this was a rescue operation to save this beleaguered uh, leader. And the other part I want to emphasize is the rally. Um, he told them that he loved them, that they were special, that their journey together was just beginning. And and when we're talking about incitement to violence in these days because of the impeachment trial, this emotional bond, this telling them that they were loved by him is part of the incitement. It's why they're motivated to act. It's part of why they're motivated to act. Um, and so this, you may have seen, is uh, the January, a view of the January rally on the 6th with the uh, propaganda film that was shown. Um, and what's very interesting, spooked me, is this is the last image of the film when Trump's face fills the screen. And I could not uh, help think immediately because I my, my prior book was a book on fascist film propaganda of the final frame of a, another film called a colonial film called Sentinelle di Bronzo. And this was a Muslim surrogate, Fosco uh, Giacchetti. But I have an analysis in the book about what it means to flood the frame of the leader's face, that you don't need any other um, arbiter of reality. And, and what he says while you see this face is, now we begin, right here, right now, and they're going to declare war. So we had a similar message coming. Uh, and so that's very, that's very eerie. So 
Like strongmen before him, Trump legitimized existing extremism and gave it focus. And this is what these guys do. They come on the scene and they take existing anti-democratic and extremist tendencies and they weaponize them and they add the cult of the leader. So going forward, what could happen if he's not convicted? Um, Trump will be free to act as a kind of outside agitator. Um, and what I fear is the goal will be to create uh, chaos and this, the idea that the Biden administration can't really govern. Um, I'm not sure this will work, um, but the, the, to also with acts of violence to create a situation of instability. And this will create more appetite for a law and order uh, ruler so the Republicans can return in 2024, whether it's Trump or some Trumpoid or someone in his family or somebody else. And this end game matters because January 6th was an inside job with Trump advisors, Trump campaign officials, donors among the uh, organizers and participants. And as more comes out, we will know more and more of what an inside job it was. So the danger to our republic is not external to the establishment, but it is part of the establishment. It comes from inside our institutions with military and law enforcement. And there's this whole discourse of kind of organized forgetting uh, the GOP is trying to foist on the American people, uh, both externalizing it, saying it was a mob, and also trying to get us to forget the violence. And so that's why it's been important to see these images uh, during the impeachment trial. And so in a sense, the, we were always favored to end up in a place like January 6th because one of the lessons of my book is the at the center of strongman rule is the legitimation of lawlessness. So thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. I will stop sharing now. Thank you so very much. Um, yes, we have time for questions, and while people are gathering their thoughts, let me ask you something general and then perhaps something specific. Um, I'm interested in why you as a scholar, as an academic, though you you are very um, conversant and active in, uh, the, in the public eye through media, but why did you decide to publish this work as a trade book for the general public? Was there a particular urgency or what was it about this material that um, compelled you? To yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, a few things. I was very concerned with the, that we're in a period of very active revisionism of the history of authoritarianism globally, not just in the States. And, you have, and in a way that whitewash, whitewashes a lot of the violence of these regimes so that it clears the way for it to happen again. And so you have Putin in Russia who's putting up statues to Stalin, but uh, sending historians and others to his gulags uh, if they write the wrong thing. And you know, when I teach my World War II class and talk about the Nazi Soviet pact, I have to tell my class that you know, if I were in Russia, I could be sent to jail for mentioning the Nazi Soviet pact. And then um, I didn't show the slide, but you know, I, there's a. There was a Proud Boys rally in um, in the States in September 2020. And this picture I have is uh, two guys. One has a Confederate flag, so that's the channel to America's own 
uh, racism and regional authoritarianism. The other one has, has a shirt that says, Pinochet did nothing wrong. Um, and so it's very important that this global, uh, this whole heritage of right-wing authoritarianism is being denied, the violence of it is being denied. So I wanted to look back uh, and, and I have a violence chapter and some people don't really want to read it. It's graphic, I talk about torture, but I think it's very, very important to do that. And I also wanted to honor those who struggled against it and whose bodies and minds were uh, traumatized. Uh, so that's one reason. The other is I, I uh, saw Trump come on the scene giving his rallies and his loyalty oaths and retweeting neo-Nazi memes. And I got really, I had a sense of dread. And so I put aside an academic book I was doing on POWs and I decided to do this explicitly as a trade book to, I thought everyone could do something and this was what I could do. I could put my knowledge of fascism and propaganda to uh, public service in this way. Okay, we have a wave of questions, so I'm going to start in on them. The first, uh, which greets you from Mexico, uh, the audience member says that uh, she loved your book and all your research. One question, why didn't you include leaders such as Castro, Chavez, Maduro? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I get that quite a bit. Um, so I, I am a historian of fascism, and what I wanted to do is um, everybody in the book, except for Gaddafi, is a right-wing authoritarian. And uh, Gaddafi is there because he has uh, he has ties to Berlusconi and to, and to Putin and to Mussolini. So I wanted to show the sort of through lines. Um, and because of that, and, and also I, I didn't put communists in the book, uh, such as Z and Mao, because I wanted to show people who wreck democracies. So I decided, you have to delineate somehow. So I wanted to really show these influences. So for example, you have when fascism falls, a lot of fascists go to Franco Spain, and I have Franco in the book. And then Franco passes, and they go to Pinochet's Chile, as well as other places in, in Latin and South America. So on up to Bolsonaro. So that, that, that was the structure I chose to give it. But in doing that, it does not mean I, I do not, I don't think that uh, left-wing authoritarians often play from the same, uh, take from the same playbook, because they do. Thank you. Okay, uh, and I'm gonna read this, uh, written in the first person. I imagine there were also women in history in leadership roles whose intent was also to gain public support to pursue self-interest rather than public good. Would those women have the same or similar characteristics as strong men? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. And um, so of course there've been a lot of uh, female tyrants in history, but I, uh, and there have been women who had certain strong men characteristics in the 20th century uh, and who did a liberal thing such as Margaret Thatcher and Golda Meir and Indira Gandhi, et cetera. But both because they didn't wreck democracy and also because I really wanted to highlight this configuration of the corruption, the violence, and how it interacts in the propaganda with the machismo. I, I really wanted to kind of capture 
how these things work together. Um, also because a lot of these guys are aging. And I do think, and I say it's the end of the book, that in the future, uh, there's a lot of you know women prominent in the far right, um, and not just Le Pen in France, uh, also in our country, in America. And so I do think that there will be a female-led authoritarian state in the future. And when it comes, they perhaps won't be taking off their shirts like and, and, and you know photoshopping their bodies onto Sylvester Stallone, but they will be just as racist, just as corrupt, just as um, you know fatuous and false and vain and violent uh, as the men. And I have female torturers and lots of other perpetrators and collaborators in my book. So in a way, it's a configuration of power and and the the underlying theme is also uh, unless we, we've had this fetish of the male, um, the dominant male who can solve our problems. So for all those reasons, I, I wanted to keep it to male leaders. Okay, um, are there countries that have laws that protect their democracy from propaganda and strong men? Um, I, I can't answer that fully. Um, I mean, certainly the countries, some of the countries that had experiences like Germany, um, uh, and, and they're very different. Uh, Germany and Italy have very different histories in this regard. Um, so Germany had denazification and there was a destruction of Nazi symbols and they, they, they both had laws, but the laws were often not as respected in Italy and they were not as comprehensive. Um, so so that's, that's part of it. Um, there are also, um, more recently, there are interesting initiatives to combat disinformation, including um, infiltration by global right networks in Italy at the local level and in Finland. So they're trying to integrate um, uh, anti-disinformation and anti and civics in a way, anti-authoritarian and training into school curricula, which is a very interesting initiative. I think we should um, have it here as well. Okay, um, where do you see Trump going forward specifically? What do you think? You you discussed this a bit. Um, what do you think he will try to accomplish? Uh, do you do you believe that you talked about he will try to be an outside agitator? Do you think there'll be anything more focused, organized, sustained, deliberative? Um, when I say outside, it's of course inside outside because unfortunately he will come away from this uh, likely failure to convince. <laughs> Deeply empowered and more dangerous than ever, actually. And you know, he—he's not somebody. Some some people, when he first lost, uh, were saying he was going to slink away in the shadows and just golf. And the psychology of of men like this—they uh, can't just be in the shadows. And he lost his Twitter account, and now the ban has been made permanent. But he has to be. In the, in the spotlight. And he also has a need to humiliate others and control others. And so he, it's very unlikely that he would release his grip on the GOP. 
He may run for office in 2024, and not sure if he will or not. Um, but his he's building a political dynasty. Of course, he will. Going to if he gets run for office, if he and ain't in jail, Laura, even if he's in jail, run. So he will be exerting power um, over the party, and he will also be acting as an extremist trying to destabilize society uh, along with all the people he pardoned who are very scary people from Roger Stone to Bannon to Flynn. He, and the reason you pardon people is to you know, free them up to commit more crimes for you. Uh, and he's got now a big crew of people who are indebted to him. So I'm, I'm, and who are I'm really free. So I want to piggyback a question onto this. You you said that Trump didn't wreck democracy. Um, I'm wondering if you see um, tried his best about the psychological effects. I would disagree. Of his leadership defeat on his followers. The moment you that in that speech when he said "I love you," I mean that was really a shocking moment because of its sincerity. For him. Um, I, mean, I mean, sincere and not sincere. He, 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 well, he seemed to believe it. Well, the secret of the strong men, one of many, is that they, they absolutely despise those they, um, they govern. And the more people um, submit to them, the more they despise them. However, um, Trump is a, I, I think as time goes on, we will appreciate more and more what a skilled propagandist uh, Trump is. And um, he's also surrounded himself with people who have decades of experience, like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, et cetera, et cetera, in psychological warfare and uh, authoritarian psyops and all kinds of scary things. So he, when he says he loves them, he, he needs to cultivate that bond and nourish it. Um, if he doesn't nourish it in this way, and it's also with narcissism. I don't use the word narcissist in the book. I try not to use like psychological you know, terms so much, but he, he has to, he knows he has to cultivate them to get them to do his bidding. And he also knows that if you make someone feel elevated and loved, because like, this is something we haven't even fully digested. I, I don't think the neo-Nazis of Charlottesville in 2017 expected the president of the United States to tell them they were fine people. So these are these, these a lot of these people are criminals. Um, they're subversives. They're people with arsenals of you know, rocket launchers, people who, they're also part of the establishment. <laughs> However, uh, hearing that Trump loves them, he's been telling them this over and over again because this is how the bond is strong. The leader-follower bond requires that mix of seduction and scorn. Um, it's very—it's a very perverse thing that I'm describing. So he—he—he's instrumental. So I personally don't think he believes he—he really loves them. He needs them to think he loves them. And his impact upon them, you feel, would be, how would you describe that? It's very profound. Um, and the personality cult stuff is, is really key. And it was difficult to get 
people to the, these are when we think of personality cult, we think of you know the leader of North Korea or the Gaddafi thing where there's huge faces everywhere. <clears throat> and it's difficult to make the leap for some people to transpose these concepts onto America, but you really can't understand the the way that uh, the Trump cult works without this this leader follower relationship. And he played these people like a violin. <laughs> starting in 2015 with the loyalty oaths and he always had the language of love um, the language the language of love and also the language of hatred for the out group and so the way it's worked since the fascist years is that you make pe certain people feel included and you make them feel special and so one of the things i get asked is well why do these guys are all misogynist how come they have so many women um, you know supporting them so if you're a white woman, or you were an Aryan woman back in the day, you have so much more status than a non-white man. So you're included. Uh, and he's, he's been masterful at shaping this group. And, and, and imagine you know, calling people to come to a rally in the middle of a pandemic without masks. What power does he feel that he can summon these people and they'll risk their own lives for him? Um, and then, of course, he left them in, in the freezing cold and stranded them. That, that's also part of it. He didn't have any buses uh, many times. And these, there were these elderly people out in the cold. And that's also part of the, the scorn. It's, it's all very sick. It's, it's very sad. Uh, but that's, that's what's been going on. All right. Um, an audience member writes that uh, they know a fierce debate has been taking place between scholars of fascism over the application of the fascist label to Trumpism and the, the MAGA movement. MAGA movement, most significantly, Robert Paxton has changed his position, choosing to view both as forms of American fascism. What's your position in this debate following the January 6th insurrection? Yeah, I haven't really changed my mind. Um, and my position is that certainly the guy uses a million things that come from fascism. Um, that's why I ended with that, the creepy face uh, next to the other creepy face. <laughs> um, but I, I don't use the word fascist, although um, again, he takes, he uses fascistic tactics mm -hmm. because for two reasons. One is that people immediately say, um, well, uh, you know, how can you call him a fascist because there's no one party state? You're still speaking, you're not in jail. You should be in jail, but you're not. Mm -hmm. So things, authoritarianism doesn't work that way anymore. I mean, people still go to jail, but you don't have the one party state. And so uh, there's that. The other reason is um, the scope of what Trump is doing and the people involved and his cronies, including his deals and arrangements with Erdogan, who's very important, doesn't get enough play. Erdogan was the leader he talked to the most. This goes way beyond fascism. Putin's not a fascist. He's a right-wing nationalist. Erdogan's not a fascist. These are authoritarians. And so Trump, Trump, is, Trump and they, they are the representation of what fascism could be today, but there's something more. They're bigger. That's why I mentioned that Paul Manafort worked for Mobutu in the Congo. He worked for Marcos. These are not fascists. He worked for Putin. So in a way, scarily, nothing is more scary than fascism. 
but Trump is channeling something bigger. Um, that's that's my point. So uh, a related then question that we've received is, well, then what makes a country fertile for characters like Trump? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to write the book was to unearth these patterns. Um, what is it that it has to be in place? What conditions? To, and time and again, you find you find the same things. And one of them is uh, if a society has had a lot of um, social change, meaning social progress, if there's been secularization, if there's been racial emancipation, um, and we had, we were very ripe for this with eight years of a president, uh, Obama, that many people thought was an affront, that he should never have been allowed to be in office, right? It could be worker rights. It could be, uh, you know, changes in gender relations. And we also had same-sex marriages legalized, which was a total scandal for many traditions. And, and all of this also heightens a sense of uh, demographic changes going on. And so, the, so you had it in Italy and Germany, you had it in Spain in the 1930s uh, before Franco's coup when women had, women had uh, they got enormous uh, rights and they made real progress. Um, um, and so this is one of the conditions. And so these guys come in to kind of turn the clock back uh, but they also modernize, but part of it's this kind of revolution of reaction, as Mussolini called it. So they, they, they bring in extremists and they seem to uh, shake up politics, but you can be sure that they are going to, um, to course correct for that kind of social progress. So uh, what must people do so that democracy can survive? in the US. And do you think that democracy can be created or restored, as the case may be, in currently autocratic countries? And if so, how? So those are two, they're two different questions for, for, I mean, we've seen how for the latter one, we've certainly seen um, the power of um, the fall of communism or also in Belarus, um, and, and look what's happening in, in Russia. Um, uh, we've seen the power of nonviolent mass protest. And at the right time, uh, nonviolent mass protest is very, very effective um, at uh, not only at opposing the leader, but showing elites that perhaps the, the wave of history is turning. And this was also true in the Arab Spring in multiple countries. Um, and then you have, if you have enough momentum, you have something called elite defection, where they, they jump ship. Maybe they've been with the leader for decades, but they finally go. Um, I kept waiting for this to happen with the GOP, although I didn't really think it would happen, and it, it didn't, in fact, happen. So everybody in America is like, what is it going to take? You know, if January 6th doesn't move the needle, what will, right? So, so that's, very, that's very sobering. Uh, as for what we can do, that's obviously a huge question. And one of the reasons I structured the book the way I did with uh, the, the main, the core of it is each tool has a chapter. I wanted to show that 
the corruption is intertwined with propaganda, is intertwined with the leader cult. And so you can tackle one of them, but you have to do it in a way that uh, interacts with, with the others. So accountability is very important. And uh, I think that uh, the Biden administration is, is has done a pretty good job if they have coronavirus to deal with an economic crisis, but it's very important to make very strong statements uh, about um, the need to protect democracy. It should actually, it's not one of their programmatic um, priorities and it should be, but he, they've already dismissed some of the uh, politicized appointees in the civil service. That's very important. I think there have to be um, commissions set up uh, to investigate extremism and, eat, and institutions have to investigate extremism. And I also think we need um, a training like there, these foreign models I, I, I mentioned. We need training in schools of how to um, recognize disinformation. And we've been able to take democracy for granted to some extent. Uh, and I think um, the Trump administration has shown, especially many white people, that the state can indeed consider you a political enemy. Um, so there are a number of people who hadn't perhaps, um, they had a wake up call during the Trump year. So, but we also, to end on a happy note, we did something extremely rare. This was, a, we were in the middle of the process of authoritarian capture. And had he been reelected, it would have been really bad news. Um, uh, there, I don't even want to go into it. And so it's very rare to be able to vote somebody out because once, as you see from all that's happened, once they get in, they don't leave. And we mobilized uh, in the middle of a pandemic with an atmosphere of threat and we voted him out. And look what happened even in Georgia in the runoff. So although he has left a roadmap for how to further wreck democracy, his years have also left a roadmap of how to resist it and how to interrupt it. And I think um, we can feel good about that. Okay. Um, you may slip into a more unhappy note. In a minute, but, um, that's my, uh, that's just fine. Can't stay in happiness too long. Um, but here's a, here's a, I think uh, the valence is neutral on this, sort of optimistic in its, in its uh, imaginative thinking. The question is, do you think that the framework of authoritarianism is also important for rescuing populism from the all too bad rapids receiving in American media, despite its birthplace within a leftist, democratic, anti-elitist tradition? Yeah. Um... I actually don't uh, use the category of populism too much in my book, and I, I read everything on populism, and I consider it a, an ideology. There are populists like far-right parties, for example, like the Italian League, and there are other ones that many of you will know, um, some left, some right, um, but I chose to consider it as an ideology that some authoritarians use, and some some are not populist at all. Like, you know, Pinochet and Franco are not populist. Like a different so I think that 
um, I, I see some confusion in the way the scholarship of pop, on populism has unfolded. Not that individual books are confused, but it's kind of what you're what you're asking. This question is like how to how to rescue it. There's been a kind of um, you know, I feel very unsatisfied with the way the scholarship has treated this, and that's also why I decided not to use it. So that's not a full answer to your question, but I'm, I'm sympathetic. All right. The final question is uh, is a is a bouquet of similar questions. Our audience is very interested in the magnetic power, why people are attracted, why, for example, I'm looking at four questions. Trump often has no facts to support what he's saying. He's often lying. Why do they believe this? Another says, um, can you speak more to what causes people to become total believers, almost worshipers of strongmen? What are they seeking? And then finally, there's, this, there's the notion here that there can be an epilogue. Um, one of the mysteries of authoritarianism is how people believe what their leader is saying, including the call to Washington uh, to take the Capitol. So what? So this is sort of the, the post face. What happens to these people in terms of what they go on to believe? So just the magnetism, what's the glue, what's the draw? in people what is being called to what are they what inside is responding or what outside what sort of contextually what are the conditions to hear this call and respond to it so some of it this those are those are very timely and important questions i have a formulation a sentence in my book that they believe him because they believe in him so once they gone to the leader, um, they kind of, and this is true of elites as well as grassroots, they stick with him till the bitter end sometimes. And it was very interesting to discover uh, in writing the chapter on the fall, the endings, what it takes to start having a personality cult dissipate. And in Italy and Germany, it didn't happen until, on a, on a mass scale, it didn't really happen until uh, those countries were bombed by the Allies. So you sometimes have to get to such a state of distress and the evidence of the mismanagement and the neglect and the scorn and all of that has to be so evident because, and these are situations, not they're not analogous to ours because there was no other media voice for years, right? Um, but given that we were, we never stopped being an open society, the extent of um, follower bonding to Trump is quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been a very interesting laboratory for all these questions that uh, people have been raised, raising. So the believing in him is a key, but there's also something else that sometimes, and there's a couple of uh, articles and communication studies on this, sometimes people they know he's kind of lying. They know he's stretching the truth, but they don't care because they want, they either want to believe him or it's part of his um, lawless maverick thing because these, these guys present themselves as risk takers and truth tellers of things that the, the kind of in our country, say the mainstream media doesn't want to tell you. And they're also sending a big middle finger to the establishment. And so 
So stretching the truth and having disrespect for the notion of truth is part of the lawlessness. I know that sounds a bit uh, odd, but that's, that's part of this syndrome. Um, that's part of it. And what they're seeking is when I said before that often um, these, these, these figures uh, are appealing if there's been a lot of change in society, they are very skilled at uh, presenting themselves as saviors um, and also presenting themselves as protectors. I am your voice. I mean, there were, when I heard I am your voice, I thought this is, this is really bad. I'm going to think and speak for you. You don't have to think for yourself. You don't have to speak. I will speak for you. Um, and some people like that. And there are studies on authoritarianism. Karen Stenner wrote a book in 2005 that, and, and has done subsequent studies. About 30% of the population, pretty much anywhere, um, has authoritarian tendencies, meaning the way they consider social relationships or institutions, they, they tend to support authoritarian relationships. They see they like patriarchy, et cetera. And it, often they're kind of dormant because the political culture doesn't support that. And that's where if somebody comes along and gives a focus to their anxieties and seems to provide a solution, they, it gets activated. That's the word that Stenner uses. And then once it spreads, it becomes part of this new political culture. And so Trump has done this emotional training. He's done this shift in political culture, helped by the GOP, of course. And at the end of the four years, the GOP is now a far right party. So the big problem for us is if you only have two parties, because a lot of countries don't have two parties, We've got these two giant parties. What happens when one of them has one and a half feet, I know that sounds odd, but has most of its feet outside of democracy? It's not interested in bipartisan governance anymore. Um, it's not interested in respecting political opponents. They become enemies. What do you do? How are we going to govern? So that's the big question. Which is a perfect ending to an incredibly interesting presentation and series of responses. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and uh, I'd like to ask our audience to fill out the post webinar survey so we can know how you heard about this wonderful event. And if you'd like to sign up to receive information on future events, you can do so there. So again, Professor Ben Giat, thank you so much. And we'll see you all again soon. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Great questions. Bye.